0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Madam's Cast. We find ourselves once again in the dreaded lockdown scenario. Uh, But hey, we're used to it and we know what to do and uh, we're fighting the good fight and that's all good. Um, And in the meantime, I thought, heck, what a great excuse to carry on uh, blethering across the Internet with various people of interest who have at least something to do with food from any kind of walk of life. And today's guest, excuse me, I'll just have a little sip of water. Today's guest is not only a friend of the show, but he's a friend of mine and a previous colleague. Um, and he's an unusual character because uh, he's now working in a, for a food charity feeding uh, people across the United Kingdom and uh, was previously involved with finance. So it's an interesting one to get your head around. And rather than me blether on for hours uh, about him, I'm going to see if he's there, and then hopefully he'll join us. Tim Woodward, CEO of the Country Food Trust.
1: Are you there? Tim, Madam Chef, I am here.
0: Hello, hello. How are you?
1: I'm very well indeed, and thank you very much indeed for having me on your Madam's cast, which I have been listening to with and hugely entertained by in the past month. So thank you.
0: Oh, that's, that's, you know, buttering me up at the beginning of the session is guaranteed to stop me asking any slightly awkward questions. So you've, you've done really well there. That's good.
1: <laughs> that was my theory. Now, Be nice now, early.
0: Now, now, I now feel like I'm in your pocket. and I can't <laughs> realistically challenge you on anything, but we'll see, we'll see how we get on. Um, okay. Right. So as I was sort of trying to allude to, There are lots of people that sort of spring to mind as stereotypes when you imagine someone that runs a charity or is involved in the third sector in in a sort of fairly high up role. Now, that is not necessarily the same stereotype character that you would imagine running something to do with banking, which I I mean, it's a closed book to me anyway. Um, Now I realise that people have different sections in their life and they change and evolve and stuff like this. But could you give us a very brief synopsis of, you know, who you are, where you're from, and then how you made that transition from there to there? Because weren't you also doing something for the United Nations at some point?
1: Yes, well, it was a sort of, I suppose it, it seemed like a strange move at the time, but actually I don't think it's an uncommon move. And also, if you start working for a charity, you, find, especially a small one like the Country Food Trust, you find you're doing all sorts of things which actually you have a little bit of experience about, um, loads that you don't. Um, but my background was um, I left school. My parents were army or my father was army. So I traveled around the world and um, consequently went to small um, prep school um, and school down Somerset. So I went to boarding school, came out, joined the army myself and then joined the city and had a fabulous 25 years working um, for various companies um, in commodity broking. Um I traveled around the world, ate in extraordinarily fine restaurants on on expenses, and was probably never quite aware of what I was eating though in hindsight you look back and it was a it was moments of of great um indulgence in some of the places we were eating but as my career came to an end um and at twenty five years of doing that, traveling about as frequently as an airline pilot, you do get quite weary um I looked for something new to do, and one of my clients. Um, Andrew Stone turned around and said, "If you ever do leave the city, would you consider looking at this idea we've got for a charity?" And the charity was a pretty simple idea, which I'm sure we'll discuss. But, um, and I said, "Yes, love to." So I've moved down to Somerset from London, and um, that's what I do now. I run the Country Food Trust, and have done for six years.
0: Brilliant. And the Country Food Trust. I mean, we'll get this. Uh, we'll get this out in the open in case anyone who doesn't know this is how I've met you because. I've been involved um, in some small way on the food development side uh, of of that charitable work. Um, And I think a brief synopsis of who the Country Food Trust are. I I tell you what, shall I do it? Because you must have to do it all the time.
1: Do you know, it'd be lovely to hear you do it and see if you still can get it right. Okay.
0: okay. (laughs) Okay. The Country Food Trust is a charity um, based in the UK, feeding people in the UK who, for whatever reason, need food. a meal, some help getting hold of some food and we partner with other charities to help deliver that and we produce specifically meals made with or protein derived from hunting slash shooting in the UK. So we use pheasant and increasingly lots of venison and those are brilliant free-range lovely foodstuffs here from the UK that we're raising money in the UK to then feed to u k people that are in need of extra food I'm not saying that we shouldn't be feeding people outside the u k that's not what I'm getting at. I'm just trying to show people the, the shape and the breadth and the uh the the sort of angle on what the country food trust what country food trust does is that is that good was that good enough yeah no I
1: think that's i think you've probably underplayed your part in it but um you were a very significant part in us moving from starting off with an idea and actually turning it into reality because Um, the the original idea was as you say game meat can we quite a lot knocking around can we help people in need and we went down all sorts of strange avenues trying to make that happen and then very early on we were very fortunately put in touch with you and you of course are not only an expert in game meat but also very strongly ethical and and have very strong views on food and that has really sort of guided how we've operated where we've gone with this so um, you're understating your um not only as a trustee but also as our consultant chef a role you continue to this day and we're incredibly grateful but it's it's been quite a journey I think um we started off with it with some very strange ideas um uh, which didn't come to fruition in our first year I think we managed to produce 20,000 meals which we thought was a phenomenal amount of food to, to produce and give away having raised money to produce it Um, And now I find myself this morning when I'm talking to you, donating 20,000 meals in one go per day on occasion. So Mm -hmm. we're just about in terms of numbers to uh, we've just gone through one point seven five million and we started in 2016. So we have really accelerated fast, not least through covid um, when people have been incredibly generous donating money to us, which allows us to buy. Some fantastic meats, um, and curiously not just game meats. During COVID, when the crisis was at its highest and people were really struggling, we mm. were able to acquire a lot of meat from restaurants which had closed down as well. So we're we're sort of ever open-eyed and looking for opportunities, as you well know.
0: But yeah, um, brilliant, brilliant. Well, I don't want you to overplay my part because, um, apart from anything else, you know, I was trying to sort of sell you as a guest, really, rather than a. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, well, credit where it's due, Mr. All right, Madden, okay, thank you. will, very helpful, So I will thank you publicly.
0: Okay, well I'll take it on the chin. And thank you very much for that. Uh, and of course, you're almost welcome. But um, before we delve too deeply into the charity, because I have a strong suspicion that um dealing with uh, hunger or unnecessary societal-caused hunger. Uh, is something that might well spring up in our three points, if you like, uh, in the middle section of the madams cast. Uh, so I, I, you know, I think we should sort of maybe just—that's a nice introduction to the charity. I like that, but I want to know a little bit more about the man behind the name. So can you? I mean, what's what makes you tick? I mean, I, right? I'm going to let one cat out of the bag. You are undeniably a bit of a twitcher. And I think that's a love that you found from your, you know, from hanging out with your grandfather. I mean, I don't need to know your entire life history, but a little bit of something to give us a flavour of what's going on in the background would be great.
1: Okay, I think that's true, actually. I'm not not sure I've ever thought of myself as a Twitcher, but I have without doubt through um, my brother-in-law is a bird guide. Um, He's a fantastic fellow called William Perez and uh, married to my sister and he's Ecuadorian. And um, we have visited him out there, my wife Hazel and I, um, last year. Um, and prior to that, I'd been out a few times. And he's got the most extraordinary ability. He recognizes, I think, 400 birds by call, everyone by sight, and travels all over Latin America, South America, guiding people from all over the world. So he got me very interested in that. The other thing, I think, is I spent a lot of time in Africa um, through my career, not, not as part of my career but on holidays and when I was briefly in the army I spent time down there and there comes a time when as most people who've been on safari or in Africa a while will tell you the big animals become obvious and you've seen them enough times and you start moving towards the less obvious and that's quite often birds so yes I've I've moved from being not a twitcher to increasingly interested in it but my grandfather was the original founder of all things nature he was um, in the Indian army came back to England when he was in his 40s. In fact, crucially, he, I think he was one day over the age allowed whereby he could re-enlist in the British Army. So became a market gardener and lived down, very close to where he used to live, down here in the southwest. And he just loved everything about nature and taught me loads and loads. So deep down, despite it being hidden by 25 years as an investment banker, there is a love of nature and um, a deep concern, I think, about what we're doing to nature at the moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, I get that. And I think a lot of people are waking up um, or perhaps have got the time maybe to pay a bit more attention or perhaps, you know, this is an opportunity for people, you know, to look at things in a slightly different way. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's just me sort of well, hoping. Maybe, maybe it's age. In, things, in
1: the well, I, I think that's right. As you get older, I think you have maybe have more time, but also that sort of picture of a grumpy old man in his 50s, you do start looking around and going, God, this is, you know, what are we doing? Oh my god, are you in your
0: fifties?
1: I am in my fifties, well into my fifties, not not just into them, but well into my fifties.
0: Okay, cool. Well listen, one more thing, right? Because it's an interesting thing before we bump into the into the foodie three segmented section of the Madam's cast. I don't want I'm not I don't want to drop you in it with this one, but it's something that I know that I've thought about a lot. I'm quite into nature too, right? I'm quite into conservation. People who know me will know that I've got, um, you know, and listeners to the show will know that I've got an interest in mushrooms, wildlife, you know, nature as a whole, ecology. Um, All of that stuff is something that makes my brain tick and I have an interest in. And a lot of people then cannot equate that with the idea that I also go fishing and I also shoot things. So I'm wondering whether you're I know you shoot, but I'm wondering whether your interest in that has changed or the enjoyment that you get from it is different because it's really difficult to explain. I'm going to frame it differently. I'm reading a book at the moment by a guy called Charles St. John, who I am told by my wife must have been called Charles St. John. I don't know why. And that's a natural history of by, written by a field sportsman in Murray, which is where I've just moved to in Scotland. And up here. It's a beautiful place. And this was written at the end of the 18th century and he's a sportsman, right? He's a shooter, avid shooter, loves shooting wild ducks and whatnot, but he's got this incredible knowledge of every small brown bird and everything else as well. Now it seems like a juxtaposition these days, let alone back then. How do those two things settle for you? Because it's a constant conversation in my head.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think... Um there are definitely the shooting of wild animals. There are certain areas where it makes more sense to me. So, for example, in the country at the moment, um, we have a lot of excess deer. um, And those deer cause traffic accidents. They eat farmers' crops um, and they can spread ticks. And there's various things they do. So, for me, the culling of deer for consumption ethically makes some sense. And, in fact talking to friends of mine and increasing number of people or a number of people in the charitable sector who are concerned with food, there's a lot of vegetarians amongst them. If you discuss that with them along those lines where an animal will have to be culled, otherwise there's no natural predator. So we are the only predator. There is an acceptance of that as a meat product in some ways, more than there is of farmed meat. Um, And I find that quite an interesting conversation to have. So I, I think, in much the same way as if you go more broadly and, you again, referring to Africa before, if you have a, and this is a very delicate one, but if you have an old animal that needs to be culled, then some countries will bring in tourists to, to spend a lot of money to cull that animal. Um, does that make sense? I'm not convinced on that one. I think there's there's two sides to that. But there are times when... Um, the shooting of wild animals make, makes a great deal of sense. There are times equally when it doesn't make sense. I and mean, I think you referred to fishing and shooting. I mean, fishing clearly now, if you go back 100 years, and you know better than I do on this, on the Salmon rivers, then I presume they were hoiking everything out to eat, and it was a great luxury. And now most Salmon rivers, the fish are being put back in again.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So that's yeah. the difference, I suppose, between fishing and shooting,
0: yeah, well, there's a long and, and intellectual conversation there, and I feel quite comfortable having it at some point. But I just sort of, I, a lot of people looking from the outside, and this is, more, I guess I'm asking this of myself as much as of you, people looking in from the outside often go, you know, how can you, I, can't, I don't understand how you can take enjoyment from shooting, say, a wild goose or a wild duck or a pheasant, uh, which is probably a lot less wild, um, and still care about, the environment and where your food comes from. And I often think that that's kind of their muddy thinking rather than mine. But I do keep having to revisit it and walk through it again.
1: But I think that's right, isn't it? I mean, I think the very fact that you shoot or fish, you're, you're in nature. So you get to see a huge amount of it. The great pleasure um, on a day shooting, if you're standing, there is the amount of nature around you. It's mm. not just necessarily the quarry that you're choosing to, to go after. And obviously, you and I both agree that in all forms of hunting, that if something is killed, then it must be eaten. It's a it's an absolute part of why we do it and the only reason we do it. And that's incredibly important to us. But, you know, the other day I was standing um, on a shoot, and as I walked up to my peg, there was a hare sitting in the hedge right by where I walked along the hedge. And it just sat there. And you, you'd never see that or I would never normally see that you're walking in the middle of nowhere off paths away from the roads yeah and you yeah, just yeah. get to see an enormous amount and you know when you're shooting you see so much wildlife around it because of course the land around it is really well maintained the conservationist aspect of shooting is is evident and and many other animals thrive not just the species that you're hunting
0: yeah yeah well actually to be honest the species that I'm hunting tend to thrive pretty yeah. well
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <Sure>. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have I have been there with you seen that done. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, brilliant. Well, look, I think that's given us a really great flavour of, um, of you know, your ability to talk about the subjects and to uh, to give us an idea of who you are and and where you are and what you're doing. Um, so let's let's you know brace ourselves, let's hold our nose and jump into the icy waters of the fantastical world of the Madams cast, where you are momentarily in charge of reality and you can change three things about the world brackets of food or related to food, closed brackets, um, and that's your arena and you can go for it. So are you ready to dive in with point one?
1: I am. I am.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, Let's suspend reality and give you the, the keys to the door. In you go. What are you going to change in your world?
1: So given that it is, it is fantastical and we can do whatever we like in this conversation, I think the first one has to be connected to what I do day to day at the charity is um, about food poverty yeah. and, and more specifically um, food poverty in the UK. And as it connects to children, um, I'm aware I'm sort of hitting a hot topic at the moment because the extraordinary Marcus Rashford um, is, is bringing this problem to the attention of everybody. Um, he did an extraordinary documentary on BBC the other day, which I watched. Watched, And I have to say, after watching, I turned to my wife and said, you know, I just feel so inadequate. There's a 22-year-old here who is bringing to all of us, you bring the attention of all our attention to this extraordinary problem. We live in a country which we call a sort of developed country. And yet we have children today who are literally in food poverty. Whose parents have to make decisions over do they clothe them, heat the house, so particularly this time of year, um, or feed them? And so, ending food poverty for children. I'm, I'm specific about children because I just don't think it's right that any child in this country should struggle to get the nutrition, not only for their own health benefits but also for their learning. It's very clear if you're hungry at school um, that you're not going to learn as well as if you're as if you're not. So mm. this may be a bit of an easy point to make and and but over covid what has really irritated me about this is that the government has consistently not done the right thing and when you have a 22 year old superstar footballer consistently defeating the government on something that is so simple to sort out in the first in the first place yeah. which they can sort out and which gives them so much bad publicity. I'm sorry, going slightly political on this one, but I suspect whoever was in government may have done it. It just seems to be an irritant that child poverty is not a, let's get it done, let's do it, let's put this problem away. So for me, we've, um, relaying it back to us, one of the things we've done is recently, and you've been part of that, is we've started using a lot more venison, which has been shot without lead, which means we can provide that to children. And our major aim over the winter has been to provide food to children in need through the winter and ongoing um, while we're in these lockdowns because they are desperately in need of it. So that would be my first end child poverty. Uh, I mean, globally, clearly, and poverty for everybody, but more specifically, so we can tackle it, child poverty in the UK.
0: Okay, so and uh, as specifically as it relates to to food, but obviously inextricably linked from uh, from other things, um, it's a um, It seems, I mean, we're in this sort of fantasy world where we can change whatever we like here right now, but it feels a little bit like the real world is the fantasy world that we live in. When you do live in a developed country, in which obviously we do, um, which has got enough money sloshing around in it or can borrow enough money to prop up its slightly wasteful economy through this global crisis to the tune of billions and billions of pounds, and yet we cannot stop what seems like a very simple thing to do, which is, you know, to feed hungry children. Uh, you know, I, I, it just seems like it gets made more complicated than it needs to be, right?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, look, we are in the fancy world here, so I'm, I'm not for a second misunderstanding the massive complications and calls on money, not least at the moment the NHS and, and yeah, all yeah, sorts yeah. of other things, but. If you look at the money that has been spent over this pandemic and think how much it would cost to ensure that every child was fed up to an age, pick an age, I don't really mind, but through learning, was adequately fed at school. And I know fellow chefs of yours have, have been on the case for quite a while about good school meals and everything else. But one what, what of the, the counter things to this is that people quite often think that if you give parents money, that they might spend it elsewhere. And therefore, they're constantly trying to give the actual food. This is this sort of goes back to the days of giving aid to African countries, where if you gave yeah, money yeah. to them, um, the person you gave it to didn't necessarily spend it on the bit you wanted to. But if you built a road or you put sanitation in, you actually made it happen. And I'm amazed here that the, the aim seems to not trust parents. And my experience from the last six years is very much in visiting people that we feed, is that the parents will go, I'm literally starve themselves in the vast majority of cases. I mean, a lot of them live on tea with sugar, and that becomes their staple whilst the food goes to their children. Yeah. And and I find this, I, I just don't believe there are very many people out there who, if you give them money to the feed their children, use it for other things. There are bound well, to be if... one or two, but I think we should trust parents. And I think yeah. we should make, between schools and parents, the solution is between those two.
0: I, I wholeheartedly agree. And, that, you know, if we want to follow that conclusion to its darkest, most ignorant thought process, which would be someone going, I'm not giving extra money to people on low income who are parents because they're just going to spend it on cider and smack or whatever their thought process might be, incorrect as it is. Um, you know, I'd rather that they still got the money so that at least there was a little bit more money and there was a little bit more chance that they might spend a little bit more of it on their child who's hungry. And then to sort of add a bit of levity to the situation, um, I have to say, if if children everywhere else are anything like my children and there's a sh- sort of food shortage going on in the household, you're not going to get a look in as a grown up anyway because they've bloody nailed it.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. And um, I, I, without sort of going into other sort of things, but obviously the quality of the food as well. And I think what we've seen recently in some of trying to provide the food rather than the money to third parties, that is those third parties can fail. And we've had some really poor examples recently of what children have been receiving, which is not nutritious. It looks, I mean, cutting carrots in half. I mean, honestly, the stuff they've really? been trying to send out. If you look at, yes, there's been quite a number of pictures of a, you know, food being given to children for a, a week's lunches and it's it's not only it's inadequate it's not nutritious and I think parents will do their very best so I, I think believe in parents is part of solving the problem of food poverty At
0: yeah 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 definitely definitely um wow I mean it is such a big one we could probably never never mind an hour we could probably run a series uh, of podcasts just talking about this one issue and I just, yeah, it just keeps going back to the beginning for me, which is let's just solve it. And you're doing a great thing with the charity and, and, and through our fantastic donors and partners there, of pumping food into that into that arena, right? I mean, that's a great thing to be to be doing.
1: Well, thank you. Yes, I mean, you know, there are some extraordinary charities out there, and I think one of the things I've always said to anybody involved with the um, charity, with their trustees, patrons, um, is. And supporters is if, if you get the opportunity to go to a food bank or a fair share, and they're always looking for volunteers, this huge re, um, redistribution charity, and spend a day delivering food to people who need it, who can't afford it. It's a very humbling experience, not only meeting the the actual individuals who need the food, but the people looking after them. There are tens of thousands of people out there trying to help this problem go away. And um, it's a tough job. But um, yeah, it's, yeah. You know, it's it's a very humbling, humbling process going out and seeing people when, let's face it, most of us, broadly speaking, have food on the table at all times.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it's difficult sometimes, isn't it, to, to sort of shed that preconception of security as well. Like, I think there's a lot of people out there right now who have probably in the past gone, well, it's not going to happen to me because I'm perfectly secure in my job and I've got my education and I've got this, that and the other. And a lot of those people this year have discovered that perhaps life wasn't as secure for them as they thought it was. Uh, And I count myself in that number. And they're having to sort of rely on support from friends and family and then potentially from government and potentially from charity as well around that. I think there's a huge the opportunity we have right now to really get on top of this problem and eliminate it from our society is driven by the impetus of the fact that there are people out there now benefiting, benefiting from that support who never thought they would have to. And that number will grow. And then hopefully that gets you to a point where it just has to be sorted out, right? Because it's no longer uh, an issue that can be brushed aside by a certain part of society. I don't know. I, maybe I'm just rambling about it no, too much.
1: No, I, I think you're right. I think there's the, the structure of the, um, the workplace has also changed quite significantly. Zero-hours contracts may get you going through in a normal time. But when you go through a period like this in lockdown, zero-hours contracts mean zero pay. And I think yeah. um, that's the other thing. The number of people we are helping who are not unemployed, they have jobs even on zero-hour contracts, but just simply yeah. don't bring enough in to heat the house, pay the rent, you know, and provide provide the basics to their families. And this is even with both parents working and sometimes elder children yeah. working. It's a very yeah. tough world out there and costs are pretty horrendous so lots of things to tackle but if you started with food poverty for kids i think that's the that's the ground block of sorting the problem out
0: yeah give them the best chance get them on their yeah, way absolutely. Yeah, i agree okay wow well i think i feel like we need to feel like we need to put a wrapper or a door seal on point number one um, i'm sure we'll push through it later and back in there again for another wander around but for the time being, I feel like we've nailed it, uh, number one. And, I, you know, I think I'm, I'm not surprised at all that you've brought that up. Food, uh, poverty within our society is a subject that has come up before and it's not going to go away anytime soon. soon, um, but hopefully we're careering towards some solutions on that one. Uh, and I'd like to know a bit more about it, so I might try and find some guests who could give me a bit of a deeper dive on that. Um, okay, Tim, you fixed child food poverty slash food poverty in a wider sense in the uk um what's next on your agenda
1: well i thought given that we've sorted that one out i thought there's no point going smaller into smaller problems we go for keep on going with the very high big ones and that this probably explains my lack of um sort of delving into food to such a level as some as your prior guess but supermarkets so I would like all supermarkets. I think it probably has to be over a certain size. I don't think these yeah. are the small food shops. All national supermarkets should be converted into not for profit organizations.
0: Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Hold the phone. <laughs> I'm oh, not okay. I'm
1: oh, not okay.
0: Okay. This is. Okay. This, no, this is big. I mean, we have had, we've definitely had uh, my own issues with supermarkets in the past. I'm noted for it. Uh, and there's a lot I'd like to see changed. I read a book by a woman called Joanna Blythman a long time ago now called Shopped, which is very, um, very interesting eye opener for anyone who wants to sort of begin looking at how that all works. Um, But this is new. This is not only, but hang on a minute, hang on a minute. We live in a capitalist society. If I own a chain of supermarkets, I want my super yacht.
1: Well, I think that's right. So, first of all, I'm not nationalizing supermarkets, but there are many, many companies set up as, and I'm also not telling us how we get there. I think what I want is not, I can't explain how we get there, but I, I think my rationale for moving to the not for profit is sound but how we get them there that would be a vast cost um so so heavy it might preclude my my first point being sort of done but um i think here's my problem having grown up in the city i watched the way that we by giving our money to money managers in the city who then drive for greater returns then make companies do things they shouldn't be doing and i think there's one or two areas where they shouldn't be nationalised. It's not. A, it's not you know nationalise supermarkets or food, but if you turn supermarkets into not-for-profit organisations, they and therefore they wouldn't be invested in in the same way for growth. They wouldn't be driven by their investors to do things that are clearly not in the interests of a vast array: the producers, the consumers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So what I think a supermarket, not-for-profit supermarket, should be driven by is. Things like the quality of their food, the localness, if that's the word, but yeah, the localness yeah. of the food, the healthiness of the food, the seasonality of the food. the What are they doing behind the scenes in purchasing that food from suppliers that helps the supplier become environmentally more conscious rather than driving down the cost of their acquisition of food and trying to beat everybody on a purely low cost basis. So that's my broad that's my broad point. If supermarkets right. had to make money, but the yeah. money that they made was ploughed back into the suppliers or help the suppliers become better or the producers of yeah. food better, I think that would be a positive.
0: Yeah. I Well, I mean, Dave, I, you're not going to stop me on that one. That sounds like a fantastic idea. Um, how do we make it a reality? So if I if I club together with you, um, I mean, I think if I look down the back of the safer, I've got, probably about 350, do you think we could club together as a group of, uh, I mean, because Tesco's is owned by, sh- let's let's choose Tesco's just because it's the one that's in the top of my head at the moment. Um, Tesco's is owned by shareholders, right? Correct. So uh, you'd, ha- you'd so- have to
1: buy the shareholders out. So this would be, yeah. and, and this is where it becomes financially implausible maybe, but not given the 330 billion we're looking at, you know, that is being spent or what is being spent on COVID, suddenly... The magic money tree we can we're shaking it furiously and all these things i'm talking about but but i think what would happen there is that i suppose what is driven from from mines if you look at the other way around if they were not for profit and did the right thing would they be selling cereals full of sugar would they be covering everything in plastic would they be buying unsustainable foods where we are still chopping down parts of the world because they're cheaper or would they be able to be run in an environmental manner so the practicality of how you do it is clearly complex. I mean, the reality is that you'd have to buy them out, or the shareholders would have to be bought out, and it converts yes. to a not-for-profit. Um, and 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 I was not. This is not part of my financial expertise, so forgive me if I've got that entirely wrong. But that's broadly how I see it happening. But if it was a not-for-profit organization charged with environmental protection, health low cap, especially with brexit coming on where we provided much more of our own food and worked with our local farmers and local producers of food i yeah. think this would be a better world
0: well that's had an impact already i mean i was trying to buy an aubergine this morning and it's gone i mean globergine is no longer existing uh there is in fact no aubergine available <laughs> in the supermarket today which is pretty good because i'm being naughty i shouldn't be buying um, I, 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 had an organic, aubergines are my, they're my fall down. Okay. Yeah. That's where I, that's can, where I, can break.
1: you grow them in this country?
0: You can, you can, but only for a limited period of time. And right. I'm, I'm the biggest supporter of seasonality yeah. you will find. I love it. I think it's fantastic, but I also know that every now and again, I'm going to crumble when it comes to an aubergine. Um, I can't, I've tried a courgette. I can live without for nine months of the year, aubergine. I get to six weeks and I'm having a breakdown. I've tried frozen chunks of aubergine. I don't yeah. want to go there again. Yeah. Um, I get, okay, so normally I get an organic aubergine. It comes with my uh, organic uh, vegetable box delivery that comes from a nice uh, place up here in Mauritius, but obviously they're probably not growing organic aubergines in the UK at the moment. Um, I've stolen your point and turned it into my own little crisis about well, the fact that I shouldn't well, eating an aubergines but- and now I can't eat aubergines anyway.
1: Well, you have, but perhaps you know it's a bit like watching green beans coming in from Kenya. You sort of think and think, okay, let's stop that and not eat green beans during the period when we have to import them. But then, of course, what you do going backwards is you're now starting to affect a grower in Kenya.
0: Yeah, but hang on. See, or I've had, had this
1: aubergine grower somewhere.
0: No, we can't. We can't dive into this too deeply. We I can't, know that, but you
1: but could I've impose a, ta- this... a levy on it. What happens if I levied your aubergine coming in, and that money was used towards the environment where the aubergine was grown?
0: Hold on, I want to deal with these points one at a time. <laughs> Firstly, if, if we hadn't disrupted the local subsistence agriculture that was diverse and sustainable for the area that the said product is coming from, okay, let's use a green bean because that's where it started. Yep. Um, They were surviving perfectly happily there before we turned up and started pumping mega beans out of their ground. And I think it's very short-sighted to say we, we should continue to keep supporting this water-expensive pesticide heavy, pyramids shaped business elsewhere, because all we're doing is exporting environmental damage and poverty elsewhere while we import cheap green beans. And fundamentally, this is where I always draw a line whenever I'm dithering over something ethical in the supermarket. There's two get-out-of-jail-free cards. One is if it's reduced, it's going to go to waste, so you might as well buy it, save it going in the bin. And number two is I will buy stuff out of season as long as it's not air-freighted and as long as it's organic. Okay. But... That suppose, wasn't where we were. We no, were it's talking not. about levies on aubergines. Were we going to use that money to buy the supermarket or
1: I think <laughs> I'm not sure how many aubergines you eat that's going to quite <laughs> be, raise the funds required. I, I think what it is we've probably gone down a, a sort of narrow a narrow tunnel here with the aubergine yeah. and the beans because the, yeah. the, the point was larger. Um, but yes, I th- I mean there's all sorts of practicalities from the back of it, but I do think air freighting food, much as I think air freighting flowers anything like that which is luxury items or out of season items would be part of my non-profit environmentally friendly supermarkets um way of working that they yeah. would endeavor to work more closely and if you you know this is much better than i do but if you look at what we produce in this country there are times when we are flush with it and there's times we're not so cauliflowers i always thought that would be something we'd never not have but we apparently have a oversupply of cauliflowers at some part of the year and export and other times of the year we import so i think there has to be some movement of goods when we have an excess and, and 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 some deficit but it's just not based on freighting stuff in
0: yeah so the problem is that the infrastructure is now owned and run by people whose primary concern is profit not food
1: correct and it's the same it's the same problem that people have with privatizing the nhs it's the same concept that should and what i'm saying is Not nationalized food, but food should not be driven. And what we buy, what we eat, the seasonality, all the things I mentioned, should be driven by ethics and environment, uh, and not by profit.
0: Right on, brother. Right on. I hear you. I hear you. Um, Okay. Wow, that's that's awesome. Um, And I like that. It's a big, bold idea. I wonder if we should start a campaign. What's the smallest supermarket chain that's national in the UK? What's the smallest one? Do you think? I don't know. As it's probably Spar or someone like that. Yes,
1: and there's so nicer and new. Is it Noosa yeah. and these, yeah. these more? These especially down here. I know you've moved to Scotland, so it's probably changed um, who they are. But I'm not sure there are many national. There's quite a lot of sort of regional ones, aren't they? Budgins okay, and okay. okay. small so okay, yeah, okay. But Yes. Okay. I think I'm fine. just
0: wondering if we could launch a campaign um, with the four people that follow me on Instagram right and we could we could all buy shares in that same chain of supermarkets and take it over from within what do you think
1: <laughs> I think that might be a struggle but, uh, <laughs> but I mean, again there's, there's more and more fun managers who are environmentally sound I'm not and you know the reality is is like everything when you ask people to give up profit and give up money um the, the answer is seldom, yes, that's a great idea, let's go for it. So I, I would I would not, if I was running to become prime minister, be advocating this because I don't think it would get any great support. The other thing, of course, it may also do, but by making enough probably. it could drive the price of some food up. But then I think you and I would agree that some food is probably too cheap. I mean, if you look well, it depends at-
0: where you depends where you allocate the cost, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I don't think necessarily. I, I mean, and yeah, I don't think necessarily the place to to fix the affordability of food is at the supermarket. Um. But um. I, I yeah. I'm I'm totally I'm totally with you on the whole overarching thing. I mean, this is just a great opportunity to look at stuff. But if you if you the, the trouble is that the price that you pay for food in the shop is not the price of the cost of production plus a profit. It, it, very often, there's hidden environmental costs um, that are being paid elsewhere, either through subsidies or taxes. And it's like everybody says, you know, you know, you, know, you should stop paying. But well, I say everybody says it's not everybody says this. But a lot of people in the past have said to me, got to stop subsidizing farming. And I think, yeah, to a degree. But at that point, you then have to pay more for your food at the shops. And so the people who can least afford to eat well then end up suffering the most again, right? And so yeah. we need to fix your point number one before we can tamper with with point number two. So I like I'm liking the order system here. Yeah. Would you also Would you also? And this is uh, this is a slightly um, I had a, a, a recent brush with the supermarket chain, and I I'm wondering would you Would you as part of that you'd want to pay your employees a bit more? Do you think?
1: I think that's. Exa- I mean, that would be the not-for-profit idea. I mean, you're still yeah. going to be making money here. So, what do you do with the money, rather than pay it out as dividends or an increased share price to to third-party fund managers uh, and and pensioners? By the way, you know, all of us somewhere probably own a bit of a supermarket if you've got any money saved. Anyway, I say all of us, anyone who's got savings. Let me be yeah. more clear, would probably own a bit somewhere. But if it was taken out of the portfolio. And let's face it, a lot of these supermarkets really do struggle with their profitability, but if that money was put back into um, lower paid workers, and in fact, a lot of the people that we help can quite often have 0 hours contracts at supermarkets, so the two the two ideas yet again interlink, and that's that's yeah. the common theme of all three of my ideas. They all do go round as, as sort of three big macro ideas. But yes, absolutely. And I think some okay. of these partnerships, as you know, one of the supermarket chains is a partnership and without doubt pays its staff, as I understand it, better and with a potential bonus. And that's got to be a good thing.
0: Well, it wouldn't be difficult to pay them better than some of the other ones, that's for sure. Um, Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm with you on that one. And you think that point number three, which is also macro, is going to give us the other end to the prism that these three are all going to function together.
1: Do you know what I haven't done is put all three of these entirely together with an interlinked policy that I could sell to government and, <laughs> and, and, Rishi, and, Rishi, and Rishi Sunak. They whilst they all collide, they yeah. they I don't I, I'm hoping and I don't believe one precludes the other being so, sorted. But I, I don't have the policy that links them all together. But they are all macro ideas.
0: Okay. All right. So so what's the third one then? And I'll, I'll sit in judgment over it and decide whether it will work or not. And then we can take it from there.
1: Okay. So the third one sort of starts off like the other two is a complaint about something that's happening. And then I talk, I will talk through with you how we solve it. Um, I've just read the most fantastic book. It's just come out recently called English Pastoral.
0: Oh, by, James Rebax. By James Rebax. Being- yeah, being um, serialized on Radio Four this week, in fact,
1: which is fantastic. Is he reading it as well?
0: Do you know? Uh, I think I don't he might know. be.
1: He's an extraordinarily erudite man, and um, he wrote um, the Shepherd's Life, and he's a shepherd from the Lake District. and I, And I believe, you know, I haven't read that book, but I will. That you know, his in terms of education, he he didn't thrive, and yet he has written his most extraordinarily beautiful books about, about farming.
0: I've and got that book. I've got that book.
1: I'll post it to you. Fantastic! That would be great. Thank you very much indeed. But I think what it's led me to think about is that, from another angle, I hate mon- monoculture. So monoculture for me is when when I was working in the city, we did commodities, and as I was leaving, or just before I left, there was the start of the great palm oil expansion, where acres and acres of land were taken down and replaced by the monoculture of palm oil. Yeah. Um, but, but that's been repeated with soy beans in Brazil, and to yeah, a certain yeah, extent, yeah. the feedlots yeah. in America. If you ever see a picture of an American feedlot with cattle sitting there eating crushed maize on dust and being yeah. and being fed water, yeah. you know it's a pretty appalling sight. So yeah. my my anti what I'd like to stop is the growth of monoculture. Um, and James's book. English pastoral harks back to an era where, of course, in these small um, lake district farms, you, you had that wonderful sort of rotational farming which allowed the animals to fertilise and crop the fields. Yeah, uh, And it went round in circles and allowed nature to continue. And this, I suppose, goes back to us talking about birds earlier on. But the reality is, is that farmers are increasingly driven, again, for profit, so I, I understand I'm taking on profit as a, a problem here, but they're driven towards monocultures, which means that you have rows and rows and rows of the same plant with no diversification for insect life, bird life. Quite often, in order to make it more profitable, you're taking the hedges out, you're diverting watercourses, and you're taking away everything allowed nature to thrive. Yeah. And that's just the that's the um, arable side of it. On the other side, which I know is the thing that you're particularly... Um, connected to or, or not connected to concerned about is when you're looking at animal welfare again uh, and this would be where you have these vast vast indoor broadly indoor um animal rearing sites where where the animals are fed in such a way that actually the, the waste from those animals and i mean the the poo is not useful becomes out as a high nitrogen slurry in yeah. this case of cows and it's And then it may have to be shipped to fields, but because it's not really connected with fields anymore, the arable farmers have to use artificial fertilizers. So it's that horrible disconnect that's coming Mm -hmm. by going through monoculture, either through meat or through arable. So I would like, here's my solution, to heavily, heavily um, subsidize farmers to stay rotational. And that would be, I know with our exit from Brexit, we've lost or we will lose some of that. But the British government could, and this is a a welfare cost, could start to heavily subsidise or incentivise farmers to keep hedges in, to keep fields of the the same size, to to rotate crop and animal. Ah, that's a lot of money I've just spent on those three things, isn't it?
0: Well, yeah, it is. It is, but it is. I think I, I think in the long the term, problem. yeah. But in the long term, you wouldn't end up having. to. I mean, the thing is, you've got to change the system, and then the problems go away, right? Right. Um, that is that is where you are. I mean, you're almost at the point um, where I can consider you a fully fledged wishy washy lefty. Um, pin the badge on you and send you off out into the world to share the message with the fellow brethren um, that profits are bad um, But
1: <laughs> I think I, I think I may have curiously I blame you for a lot of this but our conversation <laughs> over the last five years but I think actually if you think of these, these these wishes are massive wishes do they all work together? I suspect someone who knows it better than I do could put it all together and yeah. maybe link them to a point where the supermarkets were buying from rotational farms locally there is, was you know and and that food was was good and healthy and i mean not this absolutely has to be good and healthy but let's assume it is and then you're feeding local people maybe that all does link together in some super macro policy but as i said i haven't put the three together entirely
0: well luckily our fantasy government is staffed entirely by um <coughs> little uh, clones of greta thunberg so you're going to get it <laughs> You're going to get it passed no problem at all um i'm going to i'm going to use one chain as an example that's sort of and, and we might have to think it through as we go along but just to wrap this section up because first of all james Rebac is absolutely fantastic love what he's talking about uh you know the idea that livestock gathers excess nitrogen from outlying areas of the farm and brings it back into the heartland of the farm so that the pasture can grow extra grass to feed the sheep through the winter so that they can be safe and, and grow as a flock again the following year so that the excess can be taken off not as grass but as lamb, um, which has a much higher nutritional value to humans than grass does. So I, I love that explanation of that age old system and and fully support the diversity of that kind of thing as long as you're not sort of overgrazing the hills we wouldn't want to upset Mr Mombio, for example. but here's a little chain for you okay so if you use the money from your non-profit supermarket some of the profit it was making would go towards paying for more expensive food which would replace an environmental services levy um environmental services subsidy against the agriculture okay and then that would then uh how does that then help me with my food poverty problem that's where i'm getting stuck
1: well, I think, again, the lack of profit desire by the this wonderful supermarket system we've oh, created would, of course, then help f- provide food of good quality out to people in need.
0: At, at, at No more money than we're paying now for stuff that isn't any good. Correct. Or isn't, sorry.
1: Or maybe I'm less. Not, I am maybe not less.
0: saying that supermarkets are providing food that isn't any good. And I would protect people's choice to eat sugary cereal when they want to, you know, Uh, until the end of the day. I don't want to turn into the food police here, but I'm with you that the system needs some serious adjustment. The the deepest foods should not be the ones that are the worst for your health.
1: Correct. And I think it's, it's obvious around the world that I suppose if you go back hundreds of years, people... In poverty, were probably thin, and now people in poverty are probably less thin because of the food they eat. But that's a separate subject. I do, I do think, in fairness, just for the supermarkets who have had a bit of a go at, they they are phenomenal now through companies like Fair Share and through um, a, a number of other redistributors of getting their food out to people in need. And if yeah. you think of the amount of food going in out, I think uh, Fair Share alone provided one hundred and fifty meals. Sorry, one hundred and fifty million meals last year's people in need a lot of that is down to supermarkets um ensuring that with their extraordinary administration and organization they get that food that's coming towards sell by date is is wrongly branded in the wrong place whatever getting that out so supermarkets Mm -hmm. are not supermarkets broadly speaking are already helping with food poverty
0: well hang on a minute though hang on i don't want to i don't want to i don't want to pr wash that Okay. I'm, just gonna, I'm just gonna pull this up slightly because my understanding of it is, and if you've ever read a book called Waste by a guy called uh, Tristram Stewart, it was about making quite a lot of noise in the in that world about eight years ago and is still doing fantastic work. And in fact, I think it had was something to do with launching feeding the five thousand or whatever. I might have that wrong. Um he's an incredible guy, and and what it would appear to me is that the supermarkets got on board with that, slightly down to public opinion because they were like why are you public were like why are you throwing away perfectly good food that's got one day left to sell when it could be given to people who need it. Um and it was also something called the landfill tax and the legislation changing around how you would dispose of excess food you wanted to get rid of that really fired up that change and got them engaged with working uh with third parties to help redistribute food that could be eaten. And also, I think you'll find there's a few crossovers on the board of directors these days.
1: Well, so my one redeeming feature of Supermarkets, you've just destroyed. (laughs) 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 I take it away. They do nothing. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry. That was my BBC balance, trying to give them a little bit. And you've quite rightly taken me to pieces on that one. So, okay. I won't right. even give them credit for that then.
0: All right, okay. Well, no, I think the supermarkets deserve lots of credit for lots of things, but I'm not giving them that You're probably part.
1: exactly right. But let, let's hope that in this new supermarket model that part of the, the lack of profits to the shareholders would go towards feeding local people in need.
0: Yeah, absolutely right. Brilliant. Okay, great. Well, I think we'd better, before I go, do any more ranting. <laughs>
1: well... Have we not solved the uh, the UK food dilemma and problem? I think we've we put the problems up there. I'm not sure we've solved them.
0: OK, well, listen, I think what we've done is, um, I think, as sitting up above it as the policymakers, we've come up with the ideas. It's now up to the public servants uh, to basically sort this out and deliver it. And I expect that to be done before I get back from my um, spring break.
1: Well, you're the man to do it.
0: <laughs> yes 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 in a fantasy world i should definitely be prime minister no, not sure I, I think the most important thing in life is to know your limits um and i am good at having ideas but i'm not great at implementing them so i think that's probably uh, definitely not me to be pm would be a good place to start um okay right, i think that that's been a great discussion and i've loved your points one two and three and they're all very valid and welcome uh parts of the madam's cast and just to sort of soften the shock between leaving that world and coming back to reality, uh, I would like you to perform three final tasks for me. Can you remember what they are?
1: I'm sure you'll remind me, and I'm sure <laughs> I am sure I can.
0: Okay, so I would like you to choose uh, a food book. It doesn't have to be a recipe book, but I would like you to choose a food book that you would peruse in uh, a sort of quasi um, desert island type scenario. It doesn't have to be a tropical desert island. It doesn't even have to be an actual island, just to be clear, because I've had it in the past. People say, oh, well, I'd need a cookery book on coconuts, wouldn't I? And I think, well, listen, clever clogs. It's not about that. It's a temporary scenario where you can't go away anywhere else. What's your one book that you would have with you about food? What would you drink whilst perusing it? And who would you nominate as a future guest of the Madam's Cast? And they can be real, fictitious, alive, alive, deceased they don't have to come on there's no commitment but it'd just be interesting to see who you'd nominate
1: okay so um as you know um in a prior life i whilst eating fine food i wasn't particularly connected with cooking it but um since i've been uh, married to hazel who's an extraordinary cook and one of the few people i know who cooks for you every now and again with no qualms at all everybody else gets terribly nervous about cooking for you And uh, I don't think she is, but she's encouraged me to start cooking. And um, one of the things that a lot of cookbooks do for complete rank outsiders like me is they tend to go along the lines of do this, do this, do this. Now take something you've soaked overnight and you go, oh, because like most people who are starting cooking, you don't necessarily read the whole way through. And I found you got to a crisis point where now take something that you prepared three days earlier and you just the whole thing falls to pieces. So <laughs> Hazel introduced me to this absolutely fantastic food writer called Jane Hornby. And I don't know if you know her, but she's written a couple of books. She's written one called Fresh and Easy and one called What, what to Cook and How to Cook It. And the glory for me with this is that I now cook dinner parties out of these books. In fact, Hazel, who's entirely competent without a, um, without a cookbook, actually uses them as well because the recipes are brilliant. But yeah. it leads you through it. It doesn't assume knowledge. I mean, the, the recipes are really quite grown up. They're dinner party worthy or and they're not sort of the very basic foods, but they lead you through it. They explain what each bit is, what rough chopped is, at the basics. And it leads you through to an element now where I feel much more confident in the kitchen. So Jane Hornby, those two books, and I think she's written a third one as well.
0: Hang on, you're only allowed one. Which okay, one is I, it?
1: I'm going to steal with fresh and easy because I like the food in that particularly. So Jane Hornby, Jane Hornby, Hornby fresh, fresh and uh, easy easy she's a writer for the food magazine and it's got lots of pictures but it, it you cook in the order in which you need to cook to come together at the end
0: i like that so I like that. Not,
1: not necessarily useful for someone at your level but for people coming into cooking who stumble i think it's fantastic
0: brilliant okay so that well, that's a book. great recommendation that's a really good recommendation yeah. and what are you are gonna well let's say you're sitting there you're perusing your book uh by jane hornby and it's all fresh and it looks incredibly easy What are you going to wet your whistle with whilst you do that?
1: So it's not a specific drink. It's a range of drinks. And it's not as wide as beer, but it's white wine, dry white wine. But it has to be absolutely chilled. I don't think there's anything better than that first sip of a really chilled white wine. As it, oh, my God, it is just the most delicious thing. And it goes with a wider range of foods. But as I'm just looking at this, a large glass, glass of, was a Chablis, a puligny a or Pinot Grigio, it doesn't. Whatever you drink, that's white, and and I'd probably drift towards Rosie, but I'm going to stick on white. A dry white wine is the drink that I would most like to
0: have. Oh, I'm going to put you onto a good one. You should um, you should get hold of a bottle of the single grape variety Bacchus from okay. whatever whatever English vineyard you choose that grows one. There's one down in Cornwall called Polgoon. They grow a bacchus there and it's pretty special. I mean, this is a grape that's named after the Greek god of wine, right? So that you're in, you know, you could be in trouble if you get it wrong. I think I I love your passion for dry white wine. It's a great thing. Um, I I want you to give that a go. But this is your choice. Sorry. (laughs) No, that's
1: that's that, that's where I'm at. That, that's what that's what I want, and 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 that that's it. So, um, I will certainly look at their backers because always interested in new ones. But um, as I say, a broad range of
0: it. Okay, brilliant. And then once you've quaffed and eaten, and you're uh, you're not allowed to lay back and puff on a pipe anymore or anything like that. We've done away with that in our new world order. But you can relax uh, after supper and. Tell me who you think would make a good conversational guest on the Madams cast.
1: Okay, so my my the person I'm going to recommend is Adam Henson um, from Country, from Countryfile, and I thought I thought two reasons. I mean, there is an an inbuilt reason. That he's one of our patrons. Um, he's an incredibly. Um, Clever guy when it comes to all things farming, and actually, at the very least, if he'd been on here, he could have probably solved half the problems we put towards him, given his experience. But I think he's a he's a really interesting man. He's devoted to the countryside and to farming. Um, some years back, I kept rare breed sheep, and they came from his Cotswold Farm Park. And I think he'd be a really interesting person to look at the farming and food to supermarkets, and actually, probably many other areas. So that's my recommendation.
0: What well, it's a good and bold recommendation. And, uh, well, I think, really, I'm very, very happy to have Adam Henson on the show. There's no doubt about that. He'd be a very interesting guy to sit and have a chat with, for sure. Um, but definitely no more interesting than you have been. Thank you very
1: much for coming on. An absolute pleasure. Great to speak to you, Tim.
0: Great to chat to you too, Timmy. And I know that, I know that we'll be in touch again very soon anyway. But until then, um, enjoy your life. Take it easy. Uh, Try not to. uh, Can you come back to me on how much money we need to purchase Tesco's? Yes, I'll definitely do that. (laughs) Brilliant. I'll have a look under the rug as well and see if there's a couple of tuppences or something that have slid down in there. Oh, have I lost you? Uh, Oh, he's gone anyway. Oh, anyway, it's the end of the show anyway. Um, Thank you very much, Mr. Woodward, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Cheerio.